do open up a copy. I hope you have your own copy of God's Word, but if you don't, uh, you can turn to, please do turn to, and have it open, Matthew chapter 4, we're in the Gospel of Matthew, the opening of the New Testament, just to give you a little bit of Context and refresher and reminder of where we are in the unfolding story. Uh, we have uh, we found ourselves at uh, in the region of the Jordan uh, River, and John uh, John the Baptizer is that final prophet to the Hebrew people. He is calling forth uh, for something in particular. His aim is to see uh, people turn in repentance, and repentance uh, is is not only a turning away from. Uh, sin and, and selfishness, but a turning toward something, and that is toward God. Ultimately, repentance is not simply feeling regret. Oh, I, 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 I'm embarrassed. I, I got caught. Now I have to live with the consequences of my, my poor choices. It's not simply a regret. Uh, it, is actually, uh, it is actually, as we read earlier, you know, in, in the, the Heidelberg Catechism, it's to hate sin, to turn from it, to have a change. Even that Greek word in the New Testament, repentance, uh, metanoia, means that I would have a change of mind. And uh, God brings that about. And God is the one who cultivates even that for us, a divine grace. Then there's this thing that John is doing out at the river. And that's called baptism, which is a rite or uh, it's an external sign, a, a, an emblematic. It is a way for people to come, uh, particularly the Gentiles. We, we've said this in previous weeks that the baptism that John did at the river and that Jesus was a part of, that was a different baptism from ours. Uh, but nevertheless, the repentance is uh, the same. Uh, there is, a, you know, the, the Jews were asked to come and to visibly cleanse themselves and uh, the Gentiles as well uh, to prepare, you know, our hearts for God uh, to show that we want to forsake and leave that which is dirty and acknowledge that we have a holy God. Best way to do that is repentance and to prepare for the coming of the king. Remember, that's what John said. Make straight the way, you know, prepare the way, which means our hearts to open those up, because when we repent, we are we are preparing for King Jesus. Now, he was coming initially, but Jesus is coming again. There is a first and a second coming. He is alive. He's resurrected. He's coming again. And he will bring with him uh, a kingdom. Now, uh, preparing for that and experiencing repentance uh, means that we will have communion with God. It also means that we have uh, communion and fellowship with God, the Trinity. All of those were present last week in Matthew 3. And that was a beautiful reminder of how even at the opening there at Jesus' baptism, there's God, the Father's God, the Son, who is being baptized, not that he needed to be, uh, but to identify with the people of Israel in their need uh, for that. He is identifying even to take on that lowly uh, place of repentant, uh, he, not that he needed to repent, but the sign of it in baptism. God, the, the Father, comes uh, and speaks a voice. God the Spirit comes. And there is a, a dove that descends and, and, and anoints Jesus on his mission. What does the Father say? What is the, what is the audible voice of God? One of those rare occasions when he speaks and it's intelligible. People hear and what does he say? You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Who is the audience when he says that? Well, you could say it was the people gathered maybe nearby. You could have said it was it was us, you know, ultimately having heard uh, Matthew record this for us that we would benefit. And that's true. All that's true. But it's also for Jesus. God, the son needing to hear the voice of his father. 
that it would be sustaining and it would be life-giving for him, knowing what he would be facing coming ahead in his public ministry. Jesus has already been doing ministry, obviously. Jesus has already been living faithfully, but now he is going into an on mission that will involve not glory, well, eventually, but it will begin with affliction and suffering. We read immediately of how following Jesus Uh, He goes to spend, we're going to read now, how he spent time alone in the desert. No, he was not lost. No, Jesus did not need some me time. Uh, Jesus was being led, we're going to read this, uh, by God himself, the Spirit, to go out. Uh, That way, more and more, when we're going to see this, so that the Spirit of God leading him into that, more and more Jesus would be... uh, Recapitulating, that sounds really fancy, doesn't it? Uh, Another way of saying that is he is just reviewing and recapping and reliving the ways of God's people under the old covenant, the, the Hebrew people. What happens? We see this unfolding where Jesus is identifying with their Uh, traveling into Egypt and that's what he does and then he comes out and he identifies with their exodus and leads them as a prophet Moses and he re-enters through his own baptism he is following the ways he goes through his own wilderness trials we're about to read here crossing over being baptized all of those things not only to identify with Israel but further to show that Jesus is the new and true Israel He was doing these things not only to be a prophet like Moses, but to show that he is the greater Moses, a greater prophet who delivers those who follow him. No one else can make that promise or extend that invitation and make good on it like Jesus does. And that is beautiful. So please stand again, if you would, in deference to God's word. Let's read together these opening 11 verses. Again, it's Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, well, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. But every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle on the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, well, then throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Verse 7, then Jesus said to him again, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all of these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. That is Jesus well, would you, if you would join me in praying, you may be seated. Please, Father, we would humbly ask that you would uh, grant to us uh, both clarity uh, and faith. Uh, faith so we might fix our eyes uh, on Jesus in a fresh way. And that all the power that we need against 
our weakness and to meet our need would be there. Please, would you even at this moment, as we enter into uh, hearing your word and the spiritual battle that goes on, even as I'm speaking and as we are listening, would you remove those temptations? Would you speak, Lord, would you forgive us our sins, especially the one who speaks, for they are many. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Over the years of being a pastor, I've spent uh, some time visiting folks, as you would imagine, in the hospital. Yesterday, Chris and I had another one of those opportunities. I'm, I'm sad to say it wasn't another baby born, but you guys are working on that, and that's coming soon enough. I'll get to go to that part of the hospital, the maternity wing, but uh, yesterday, Chris and I went to go visit our, our dear Dottie, uh, one of our members who is, is sick, and many of you know and love and appreciate her, and she needs our prayer, and I will, at the close, pray for Dottie. Uh, she's been in a lot of pain uh, because of some complications and some, uh, some kidney stones and other things. They're not sure what's going on, but she's in a lot of pain, and when we saw her in the hospital yesterday, uh, we, we saw that, 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 that big smile still, uh, her, her red hair and her big smile sitting there in good spirits despite having to endure a great deal of pain. Uh, one of the things that's made it troubling is uh, that she hasn't been able to sleep, and some of that's because of the pain, and some of that's because of the guy across the hall. He's been screaming at the top of his lungs, uh, and, uh, and he's just been miserable. Uh, and for whatever reason, uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether someone's helping him or not helping him. Uh, he is just not happy. And so it's been kind of difficult, uh, you know, to sleep because he's been he's been just so miserable and ungrateful, even when people come in. Except Dottie said one nurse figured out the trick. She goes into the room and she says, well, hello, sweetheart. And somehow uh, he falls for that. And, uh, and he is, I know there's sarcasm, I'm sure, on her part, but nevertheless, it seems to be working. In fact, this morning she texted me that, she, uh, that he was quiet. She thought that he had left the hospital, uh, but he started screaming again this morning, she said, so we'll pray. Uh, the, another scene, another hospital, uh, uh, this is completely different. Uh, let's talk about another approach, a more sincere approach in the hospital, not sarcasm. There was a movie at the end of the 90s. Uh, that starred Robin Williams, and it was called Patch Adams. Some of you may have seen it. It was filmed in my home state and even in my hometown of Asheville. And it's based off of a true story of uh, a gentleman who a little later in life decided uh, his name was Hunter uh, Adams, Patch, uh, they called him, to become a physician. He enrolls in, he enrolls in medical school, and, uh, and we see him in his third or fourth year, and he's uh, going around and doing rotations with a large group of people and the attending, uh, you know, the, the, the professor is walking around the halls and it's somewhere set in the 1960s or 70s. And there's this poor lady who's, you know, she's spread out on a, you know, on a, on a, um, on a hospital bed, rolled away into the middle of the, the hospital. And uh, the, the, the physician, the attending walks by with all of these eight or ten or so, uh, you know, med students and says, here we have a case of juvenile uh, diabetes and such and such a sores and this type of neuro neuropathy and using all this te technical language. And then he's, he's got his chart. And he looks at all the students and he says, what questions do you have? Oh, one, one kid tries to kid, you know, a young uh, med student and uh, has a question that sounds very technical and, and impressive. And another one has a question. And, and it's just it's just interesting because um, Robin Williams, Patch Adams, comes forward and he says, uh, I have a question. Uh, what is the patient's name? Uh, he was personalizing this. This woman, no one was looking at her. 
It was obvious to her. She was anxious. Uh, the, the physician looks down at her. Her name is Marjorie. And, and Patch Adams says, well, hello, Mar- Margie, Marjorie. And you can see the fear on her face. And she's relieved that people actually know who she is. Of course, she was troubled when the physician said it might be gangrene and we might have to amputate. But it meant so much more that Patch Adams would say, what is her name? Now, let me just weave these two stories together. Friends, in the hospital of life, in relationship to people trying to help us, people trying to help me. There are times when I have been both of those patients in the hospital. There's been times when I've been an ungrateful patient. There's been times I've been a scared patient. I'm so glad that the Lord God, Jehovah, the Heavenly Father, my Heavenly Father, shows such attention that he knows my real name and he knows my real story. He showed it last week, remember? He showed it last week even for his own son. And we get to experience this, united to Jesus, that he looks on us when we're united to Christ by faith. And he says, you, I know your name. You're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Even when I'm that patient who's so ungrateful, he says, I know your name. You calm down. I know you can't change you. I know you can't change your circumstance. I know you can't change or control things. Without my help, you can't even love other people or control yourself, Troy. But I know your name. You are mine. I know you. And I love you. How can I doubt his goodness? How could I doubt his tenderness? How is it possible, even more so, that he does know you and me and yet still loves us in Christ? Well, it's key to say that last phrase, which is in Christ. Because of the victory of God the Son, it is possible that he would know us fully in our ungrateful, unappreciative, uh, you know, grumbling and still love us and set his affection on us. This is going to be one of the most intense moments at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. There will be another intense moment of trial and temptation in the garden. And not this wilderness that he's going into for 40 days, but in the garden right before the cross. So here's how I want to break down this text. Just two main headings that flow throughout it. I think it's this, the son of man's temptation. And secondly, the second Adam, his triumph. It's listed there in the order. The son of man's temptation. We see that Jesus indeed is a son of man, a son of of Adam, ultimately a full-blown human being who enters into this intense struggle. Uh, Even here physically, right? Jesus' frailty, his humanity is on display. He's naturally hungry. He is weak. He is at a a point of struggle. Uh, You know, obviously, I'm sure he also emotionally is very lonely at this stage. There indeed is a difference to Jesus' temptation and ours. His, our temptations come from without and from within. Jesus has no temptation from within. Uh, he has no desires that are not in line with the will of his Father. Uh, he, is, he is a pure man. But he is being tempted even now as we read here in Matthew 4 by the, the, by, by the accuser, by the tempter, the father of lies, to doubt the goodness of God. In the text, verse 2, there's a participle there. In the original, it's he is 
being tempted. In other words, this was something that was an ongoing thing. This was not an occasional thing while he was in the desert for 40 days and nights. This was, a, this was an ongoing thing. We have recorded here three particular temptations and tests that Satan brings to him. But nevertheless, this was an ongoing barrage of temptations. We are quite confident. Jesus encounters here angels. Primarily, one really bad angel, a fallen, deceitful angel. We know him as the devil, uh, the accuser, the diabolos, a fallen angel who rebelled and uh, was and is even to this very day trying to bring uh, his and extend his influence. He, of course, has an entire army of demonic spirits who continue in this, in that and in this world. He's elsewhere referred to as the God or the prince of this age. I've written and talked a great deal about that fallen angel, Satan, the father of lies. Elsewhere, Jesus refers to him as that, the father of lies in the Gospel of John. But here, Matthew records him as the tempter. Verse 3. And Matthew records three temptations. We don't know exactly how this transpired, how Satan was manifest. I mean, we, we're not trying to imagine that he actually found a mountain. There isn't, uh, there isn't need for him to travel physically to the highest place to see all the kingdoms of the world. It may have been just that it was that visionary experience that he encountered with this fallen angel, Satan, tempting him. But let's work, work through these three uh, tests and temptations and what's behind them. First of all, verse 3, while Jesus is uh, a human, a son of Adam, he is physically weak. And so what does Satan say to him? He says, if you are the son of God, then command these stones to turn into bread. Notice that he does not say, since you are the son of God. He <laughs> says, if you are the son of God. Pro tip for some of you young parents, right? Over the years, I've learned this one. Uh, I'm not giving anything away because my kids have already sniffed me out on this one. But I, I'll commonly say, hey, if you guys are strong enough, dad could use some help getting firewood in the house. Next thing you know, I got three boys competing to help finish that chore. Jesus doesn't take the bait. If you are the son of God, Jesus knows that he is the son of man and the son of God. What is Satan saying? He's not tempting him to, to something egregious, something obvious. It's not as if he's saying, oh, you should, you should just indulge yourself in gluttony or adultery. That's not the nature of this temptation. It's very subtle. It's nothing inherently wrong if Jesus were to turn stones into bread. But at this point, he's not talking about that. He's saying, come on, hurry it up. The father doesn't care about you. Doubt his goodness. The father, it's a simple thing. You need to survive. Don't you want some food? It's not a big deal. Just turn this into bread. Jesus rebuttals that. He answers by quoting scripture. It's, it's from our, our Old Testament reading in Deuteronomy 8 that Chad read for us. Man cannot and man is not designed to live by bread alone. But the words that come from the mouth of God the Father. God has spoken. The people of God are in the wilderness. They were asked to trust God. The people of old, the, Hebrew, the Hebrews, they were in the wilderness wandering. And God said, here is manna. Bread from heaven. And they still grumbled. 
And they still doubted. They, they, they failed. They struggled to trust God at different points. This is just another glimpse of how Jesus is identifying with his people. He's retracing the steps. It's almost as if it's a, it's a type. It's a, it's a microcosm. All the years and the 40 years of wilderness, he is 40 days now. And they grumbled. But praise God. Thanks be to Jesus that he endured this. Even when he was hungry and lonely, he is sustained. He does not succumb to that temptation to doubt the father's goodness. Now, there's a second temptation. It's still along these same lines, right? To question the heavenly father. The temptation, the test here is verse five. Let's look at it again. Then the devil took him uh, to the holy hill, the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if Again, here we go. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. I mean, it's, it, it's told, it's written. The angels will guard and keep you. He's, he's making reference to uh, the psalmist in Psalm 92. Uh, it's a messianic psalm. He's saying, just, just take care of that. That's not a big deal. He will command his angels. Jesus responds in word and in deed. Verse 7 I prefer to trust God and not put him to the test. I know my heavenly father. He will be here. He will come. He will provide. I know that his word is true. And I'm going to see this test. of yeah, Not every test in life is for failing. Sometimes we come through. Jesus here comes through triumphant as we'll talk more about in a moment. Well, let's look briefly also at this third temptation. It's verse eight is where we see it. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down. Well, here's the deal. All the kingdoms of the world were already his. They had been promised and foretold. And what, what, what Satan is essentially doing is saying, I'm not asking you to, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not promising something you weren't going to get already. I'm just going to get you there a lot faster. Jesus, listen, we, we, we can get the glory. You can have the kingdoms and all of that. But you can skip the cross. You can, you can forgo the suffering. Doesn't that sound so enticing? Because the father had already promised Jesus in Psalm 2 and elsewhere that he would have the glory and the authority to make every one of his enemies a footstool. Praise God, Jesus is committed to the plan, which is suffering first, then the glory. He shows that again, he's been faithful. And he quotes verse, in verse 10, you shall worship the Lord your God straight from Deuteronomy 6 and serve him alone. You know, honestly, even without the mission and the office of Jesus, even without circumstances like this, nowhere in the Bible has it ever told us we've got to go out into the wilderness and spend time alone for 40 days fasting. But even without that calling and mission and circumstances, we can identify, can't we, with temptation. We have temptations, as I said earlier, from within our own desires and from, and from without. Things that provoke us, voices that entice us, temptation to doubt God's mercy, his generosity, his character, his law. This isn't going to work out. If I follow God in this scenario, 
no one's going to look out for me, so I need to do this or that. When we disobey our conscience, when we fail to follow God's wisdom, when we disregard God's law, we do that because we're saying, I want it my way. We're insisting upon what we desire. And the lies of the enemy, the strategy of the enemy, and I've said this multiple times, they're not not new. They're varied. They're, They're at times very sophisticated, if you will. The schemes, the lies, the tactics, the devices. And he has two primary, but they always fall into one of these two headings. And if you're into boxing, which I'm not, but I understand, I understand what a left hook and a right hook is. And the left hook of the enemy is temptation. And then the right hook is accusation. Let's, let's just think about how this works. The temptation is like this. Oh, come on. It's not that big a deal. You deserve a break today. There's a, there's a simpler way. Don't make this harder than it needs to be. You've been a good person it's not a big deal. You're not going to get caught. No one's going to know. It's, it's okay. God will forgive you anyway. Just go there. Think that. Say that. Respond that way. It's okay. It's fine. And then when we take the bait, and then when we find ourselves given over to that temptation, partly because of our desires within and believing the lies from without and the pressures, we take the bait. And then what does he come and do and say? Well, we thought this would make us happy. We thought this would get, bring a little bit of relief and satisfaction. And then when we fail and guilt and shame comes, he comes too with the right hook of accusation. See, I knew he, you, you, you're never going to change. You're a failure. How could God know you, love you all at the same time? This is ridiculous. And he accuses us and brings us down with shame. That's part of spiritual warfare. There is an invisible battle going on around us. I don't want to make too much of it. I don't want to make too little of it. It's a battle between right and wrong, between light and darkness, good and evil. Satan wants to disrupt our fellowship with God and with others made in his image. He wants us to allow our, he wants us to allow those temptations to give way to sin, and that leads to bondage, and that leads to, to death. For any and all of us. So what is Jesus doing out in the wilderness facing temptation? Well, he's doing exactly what he is supposed to be doing. Unlike us, who wanders into temptation. Sometimes, by golly, we just skip our way right into temptation. When you're tired and you're hungry and you're hurt and you're disappointed and you, you're, you're, you know, feelings do lie. <gasps> Newsflash. We're tempted, aren't we? And sometimes we just kind of well, I'll just, uh, I'll just linger around in this. Jesus was led by the Spirit into this. Jesus is taking steps of obedience. There are times, yes, that temptation altogether surprises us. 
But I tell you, verse one, Jesus was led by the spirit. And although the tendency is to take apart this whole temptation and talk about how this is this is how we're supposed to, you know, fight temptation. Look how Jesus did it. Now, there is something to learn. And I'll close with some application. But that's not the primary driving point. Let us not miss the main point of Jesus journey here. He, Christ, the anointed, has been baptized. He has received the acclaim and the the approval of his Father in heaven. And now his first matter of business is suffering through obedience. He is on mission. And in doing so for these 40 days and nights, he deals a death blow to the work of of Satan. Satan wanted this would have been the most opportune time for Satan to strike and to take him. But he does not fail. It's one of the finest verses in all the New Testament concerning Jesus' purpose. 1 John 3 8. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Thanks be to God. This is part of where he dismantles it. By the way, the father does vindicate those those lies. What were the lies? Remember? Oh, he's going to, you know, send his angels right now. Just go ahead and launch off. No, God does make the father makes good on that. But Jesus had to wait till the close in verse 11 when he does send his angels. And what do they do? The devil left. And what comes? The angels were coming to minister to him. Well, let's travel back through because that's. That's the son of Adam, the son of of man enduring temptation. But what do we see also here? But the second Adam and his victorious triumph. I mentioned last week. We're supposed to read scripture in light of scripture, particularly the creation narrative of Genesis. Genesis three is where we see that Adam who is the father of humanity, our father in the garden, who is our representative, and we were just as much with him and our parents, Eve. They failed. They they and we were plunged into a curse and a fall. But even in that, in Genesis 3, with the fall, there is this glimpse of hope. More than that, it's told to Eve that one of her descendants, meaning a human, and we now know that to be the Messiah, the God-man, Jesus, will be a descendant that he one day would crush the head of the serpent who also was cursed Satan. And this is where they're living and battling it out. That was in the garden. Now we're in the wilderness. Jesus comes into view and he is here now. Another Adam, a second Adam, another representative. He's referred to that way in both Romans 5, the Apostle Paul writes there, also in 1 Corinthians 15. But this is an illustration that displays for us, and just consider it by way of comparison and contrast. The first Adam endured temptation and lies. Jesus, the second Adam, endures lies and temptations and tests with Satan. Both Adams encounter the the devil's ability To twist the word of God. That's always the the best way of lying in case you were wondering. It's not blatant. It's not stone straight faced lies. It's half truths. And And Satan does that. He takes the word of God even from the very beginning. The father of lies as he is. And he says to Eve and to Adam. Did God really say? 
And he nuances it. And so he does here, too. He's, he's quoting scripture. He's taking it out of context. He's using it for other purposes. Both Adams encounter a desire for food. The first Adam, it is the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. The second Adam, it is the temptation for this bread. Does that make sense? Are you, are you, are you seeing this? Did you, do we think this is an accident? No, of course, it was the spirit who led him into the wilderness. But here's where the divergence happens. And it's a big time game changer. For the first Adam, he was with his wife, Eve, in the abundance of plenty and peace in the garden. But for the second Adam, it was a wilderness of want and loneliness. The first Adam chose to disobey and distrust the God who made him and his one word to him. And the second Adam obeyed and trusted the whole counsel of God. Adam turned the garden into a cursed wilderness. Jesus enters the wilderness that he might take us back into a garden where we have fellowship with the triune God. What do we learn? Jesus will. He's beginning here, but he will undo and he will triumph as and over the curse of the first Adam. He achieves this because he's our representative and we are with him. And Hebrews 9, excuse me, verse 9 of chapter 2 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. But there has to be more to this in building up to the cross. It was not only that, it was also his temptation. All of the hurtful circumstances, the betrayal, being misunderstood, having to be ridiculed and rejected and humiliated and physically beaten and then hung on a shameful cross. That is full obedience. And it's in our place to take our sins and to give us his perfect righteousness. Now, I feel like that's the, the driving thing that we would see. But I want to leave you in view of this great victor, our victor, and our hope as sons and daughters as we wait for the inheritance that he's appointed. An inheritance that completely outshines what we could imagine that the Son has given for us. I've said it before, just to remind us that Christianity, whatever, you, whatever notion you have about Christianity, it is a four-letter word religion. That's right. Do you know how you spell Christianity? Every other religion is a two-letter word religion, which is D-O, do. But it's only Christianity that is spelled a four-letter word, D-O-N-E. Done. In Christ, he has done for us what we could not and would not do for ourselves in his perfect obedience at every time, trial, test, and temptation. He trusts in the Father's love. Maybe this is a way to just bring it in, right? For our own, our own battle with temptation, which will probably have, it's already been happening. 
But it'll happen in an intense way probably for you and for me this week. How do we approach that? What is something practical to take away as we look at this account? Well, one of the things I love about Jesus here is that he trusts the Father's love. It must have been ringing in his ears, the the previous verse. And it's all conjoined together with the word then in verse 1 of chapter 4, that right before that, he heard this ringing in his ears. This is my beloved son. Now make me proud. You better perform. No, he doesn't say that. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm pleased. He knew he needed to hear that as he entered the valley of suffering. He also has the spirit of of power with him, the Holy Spirit. We We should ask God, would you please grant to me more of your controlling presence, your spirit in my life as I face temptation? Jesus knows. Here's another tip. Here's another example and battling temptation, Jesus both knows God's word and he uses God's word. We're told that we have a, an armor that we can take up to battle in uh, spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6 says one of, those, one of those tools, one of those pieces of the armor is the sword of the spirit. We take it up. That's why we see in the text here, As Matthew records, verse 4, verse 7, verse 10, what does Jesus say? Uh, It is written in in response to the way he twisted the word of God and tried to get him to doubt the goodness of God. He says, no, it is written. You are wrong. He takes up God's word and quotes it. Friends, we need these things. I mean, you think about it and your life whether it's some other voice or some other advertising or some other website or some other email or some other nasty thing that someone has done to you and Satan comes and he appeals to us and he tempts us in our flesh, in our weaknesses, in our desires. He puts a cloud over the goodness of God. He says, you need something else. And that's when I want to say, Philippians 4, my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. That's the word of God. My God shall supply all of my needs. We also need to pray that we'll be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit so that we can both walk, sometimes crawl, and sometimes run by faith. Sometimes the Bible says, wait on the Lord. Other places like sexual temptation, it says to flee, run. Don't dance, don't skip, don't entertain, don't hang out. Don't revisit. Don't linger, don't look. Run, flee. Is that our culture? Is that where we live? Is that the voice that you hear? Our culture, and this is true down through the ages, so it's nothing unique, says, walk with temptation and run from suffering. Let me say it again. It's not original to me. I don't remember where I found this. But I've remembered it down through the years. We tend to walk with temptation and we run from suffering. 
But in our trials, and plenty, and want, joy, sorrow, sickness, prosperity, when we've been ridiculed, that's it. I'm doing this my way. I need my coping mechanism. I need my out. I need my escape. I need my, my, my fill in the blank. But when we look at Jesus, we see a patience and a faithfulness walking. And it says, wait in the wilderness to see what God will do. Not can, but will do. He will provide. We see the triumph of the second Adam when he says, we don't need to be exalted and to deify our desires. We need to deny our desires. And find joy and submission to the Father. There's a distinct reason that Jesus, and we're going to read it in a couple of chapters. Actually, we're going to say it in a couple of minutes. There's a reason, and you've got to contemplate this from time to time. Jesus gives, the disciples say, the Lord, teach us to pray. And he gives a perfect outline. This is, this is not like a, just like a, a rote thing. This is like a, a perfect outline that we can build upon and expand and understand. The Lord's Prayer. What is one of those petitions? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The actual translation can be translated from the evil one. I think Jesus knew something about that. Yeah. Trust him today. Follow him. Maybe it's the first time. Truly. But when you face temptation this week, cry out to him. Pray with me now. Lord, our Lord, your name is majestic in all the earth and we thank you. We thank you for the suffering and the surrender and the sacrifices of Jesus, our faithful Savior. Lord, would you please forgive us. Forgive us for all the ways that we've been living and and, and dwelling in self-reliance and self-help and self-pity. Forgive us, Lord, for doubting your goodness and your loving kindness. Would you help us to wait on you for all things, trusting your promises, rejoicing in your power? Lord, we know that we live at times when we look around in evil and confusing days. There's unrest and division and fear, even hatred. So, so whether it's trials and suffering relationally or financially or emotionally, physically, medically, may our struggles be marked by waiting on you, trusting your promises, rejoicing and calling out to you for your power. Lord, give us victory over temptation, not so that we can feel good and boast, but that we might honor you and love people and experience the joy of the Lord. Lord, I pray this morning that you would be with our dear sister Dottie in the hospital. We thank you for her faithfulness. Thank you that she does rejoice in the Lord. We ask that you would comfort her. Would you grant her rest and healing? I pray that you would grant to her providers and nurses and others tending to her great skill, insight, and compassion. Lord, we know that Christ has set us free. Uh, 
But we also know that he's called us to take up our cross and follow him. So help us to flee and run from temptation and walk faithfully through suffering. Make us lovers of Jesus and peacemakers and ambassadors, people who speak the truth and walk in the power of the gospel. We pray through Jesus, even now, as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying together, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I invite you to stand as we respond now to God's word.